Good evening from Coolidge, Arizona. It is January the 9th, 2020, and we are continuing in our studies in the writings of the Apostle Peter. This is our episode number 10. We're in chapter 3, and we are uh, going to finish the chapter, this, that's our plans at least, through 22, verse 13 through verse 22. Um, one thing I'd like to say to kind of premise uh, our study tonight is as you read these scriptures, as you uh, go through them in a cursive, cursory way or, or a study way, I, I think the same uh, thing happens. You realize that every statement the apostle makes is really necessary for each Christian. Their character and their understanding need to be um, on board with everything he's saying here. Uh, it's not that it's complicated. It's just that it's it's pretty heavy. And uh, he's not, uh, you know, he's not afraid to make the the suggestion uh, out as apostolic principle uh, doctrine for the church and of course the way to live as a Christian those things are understood now the reason I think that these statements are so good is they allow us as Christian people to live in a blessed state of life uh, life, a blessed state of life. Now, by by that word, I want to explain. It's not the uh, word for well spoken of. Word for a lot of people just say happy, but it's not just happy. It's a it's a content, settled in your spirit type of existence. Whatever their circumstance each one of us. That's the contentment we like to have even when things aren't going so well. Um, and there's lots of promises concerning this as far as this blessing being a thing. I'd like to share with you from First Corinthians chapter <coughs> excuse me, chapter ten, verse thirteen a very familiar verse to many folks. And yes, uh, chapter 10, verse 13 in 1 Corinthians, this is the Apostle Paul again writing, uh, or the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, No temptation hath taken you except human, and God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are. But he will make with the temptation also the outlet for your being able to bear. So I, I think that's a good promise. Um, I think many people have probably experienced that in, in life. Uh, sometimes maybe it, it probably could happen and you're not even aware of it. I'm pretty sure that's happened to me before as I was uh, not too tuned in maybe to some of the things I should have been noticing. But nonetheless, uh, that's all part of this. Uh, these statements that, that are made are not just uh, overpowering dictatorial type of statements. They all have a real purpose and they are gently given, I, I believe. So as we complete this chapter, though, the apostle Peter is going to give us some very helpful illustrations concerning uh, the much-debated uh, much topic of baptism and how, this is what's important about this statement, and how that 
that uh, correlates with the idea of a clear conscience before God. You see, that's the problem. The debate has always just been on a certain act or something. But, you know, if you don't understand the history of, of it and, and the reality of it, both physical and spiritual, it's rather hard to debate the issue of baptism. Well, the apostle doesn't have that trouble. He has a complete understanding of it. And we should be falling into that category uh, through scripture reading and our study in general. So let us begin. We're going to look at the 13th verse. It's where we left off last week. We read the verse. <coughs> but I think it's important to read the text tonight. Um, we'll go verse by verse tonight. And who is he who will be doing you evil? If of him who is good, you may become imitators. By the way, the word he is not really in the text, but it's implied. I see the is is also implied. Um, the idea is, who is it that is doing you evil if you are in the position that you should be? In other words, imitating him that is good. The final outcome of the saints living in Christ is victory. Now, that, that's something we need to understand. So, so the bumpy road to the gates of victory, I guess, are part of the journey. Uh, so we, we may have situations that come up. But the idea is, if you know that you're already a victor, it makes the it makes the circumstance a lot easier to deal with, and just compare that to anything in in life, things that we worry about that might happen. Well, we don't know the end of it, so we worry about it. This we know the end. Why do we so worry? Well, maybe we should ask that question. So be ye imitators of him who. mentioned last last week about the idea of good and Jesus says uh, when he was called the good teacher he says why do you call me good only my father in heaven is good so he's trying to give a real emphasis to that word good uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians 11 1 this is the apostle uh, Paul here writing to the church in Corinth, the same as the last passage I read. But he says this to the people, to the assembly, followers of me become you, as I am also of Christ. So I guess if you want more formula, that's it. Um, the apostles were imitating Christ. They had power from on high, which was the paracletes, which is the spiritual presence of Christ within them. Uh, Paul even went so far to say that he had the mind of Christ, the apostles did, not just him, for the work of the apostolic ministry. But we can also be followers, and as a matter of fact, in John, 1 John, the first chapter, we're taught that we must follow the apostles to have real fellowship with the Father and the Son. So, uh, all these things certainly tie together. Let's see, what, what verse is that? It's 1 John chapter 1, uh, I think it's up in verse um, yeah, verse 3 in first chapter, uh, first John chapter 1. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that is the apostles, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write 
so that our joy may be made complete. Um, so you, you see the pattern here. This idea of imitation, you know, imitation in our normal day uh, is kind of frowned upon in general life. Um, although imitating something that's good is usually a pretty good practice, but I guess it can become, uh, we can take anything too far as far as but when it comes to this imitation, of course, is the imitation that's spoken about concerning the idea of righteousness, holiness, and right in a right standing with the Father in heaven. So I think we're safe in being imitators of him who is good. You see, all the things that if you're there, if that's where you are, you can deal with the other things that come up. That's why the apostles bring it up like this. In verses 14, let's read those. Continuing kind of in all the rest of the chapter pretty much runs together. Uh, one thing premises the next, if you will. And it says, but if you also should suffer because of righteousness, happy are you. That word is the same word that we talked about, I talked about earlier in my message here about content and settled. That, that's what you are. Uh, that work with suffering because of righteousness. You know, you're suffering. How can you be content? And, well, if you were, you wouldn't have such trouble, would you? And of their fear, be not afraid. In other words, that the your accusers or whatever they may be doing, nor be troubled. You see, this is the state, and it's by the way, this whole concept is based in faith, because faith. The stronger our faith, the the idea of our fear goes away. It goes down, 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 to where. Fear, in, in the way of terror, being afraid of men and what they can do to us or to any other person, becomes a small thing next to our reverence for God in our faith in God. That's what this is based on. Suffering for righteous acts and living with a good conscience will bring through faith contentedness, and a settled spirit. That's what the apostle's saying. And you know, if we don't, if we don't try it, we won't know that, that the uh, situation exists for us. But it takes, uh, it, it takes a little courage to, to do these things uh, because um, suffering for a righteous act is usually the thing that gets uh, people up on their feet pointing a finger and, and raising their voice. But maybe that's not the right thing to do. Think about the situation. It, would it be better if we did not do that and do something in a rational way? I think it goes from one situation to another on that. But the idea of a good conscience, okay, let, let's go on. Let's read that verse again. I got derailed. Uh, but if you also should suffer because of righteousness, happy are you. And of their fear, be not afraid. Nor be troubled. Verse 15. And the Lord God, the, and the Lord God sanctify in your hearts. And be ready always to de, for defense to everyone who is asking of you an account concerning the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And the last part of that verse is, is kind of um, uh, a continuing thought or, or maybe what would quickly follow what happens in verse 14. As you're suffering for righteousness, the next thing you know, you're going to be asked to defend your position. Well, it's hard to defend a position where you lost control of your temper. 
Here you have a chance if you don't do that. Suffering uh, for those righteous acts and living with a good conscience will bring through faith that, that uh, contentedness and a settled spirit. But be ready always. Now, by the way, the word be is not in the original and not in there, but it, it's implied about you be ready. Uh, those uh, reading the letter, you, whoever you may be, be prepared, be ready always for a defense to everyone who is asking concerning the hope that is in you. And let me ask you, can you defend your faith or explain your faith? Uh, What I'm not saying is, can you prove there's a God? Because that that isn't the issue, I don't believe. Because they can't prove there isn't, and you can't prove there is, but there's a reason you have hope. And that's what he's talking about here. You need to be able to defend yourself in this way. So can you defend it? Now let's look at Hebrews 11, the first uh, three verses, and see what the words say here. And the writer of Hebrews says, And faith is of things hoped for, a confidence of matters not seen, a conviction. Now, that's a lot being said right there. For in this were the elders testified of. Through faith, we understand the ages to have been prepared by a saying of God in regard to the things seen not having come out of things appearing. And it goes on in that vein. Now, you know, uh, you you can discuss these matters with people, but a lot of times these passages are hard to understand. But it is the reason that you have hope. Because your hope is grounded in your faith. If you don't have faith, then you don't have any hope of the promises of God because, uh, you know, as God said himself, uh, without faith it is impossible to please God. That's in the sixth uh, verse of this chapter, uh, chapter 11. So, uh, all these things, like I said, one thing builds on another, it ties together. Hope is a byproduct of faith. Yes, it is. And also, you're hoping for things that you don't yet possess. Um, or it wouldn't be hope, would it? That's uh, Romans chapter 8. All right. But the, the thing is, our hope in, in our faith, by that we know that God made all there is from things not seen. Certainly not seen by us, but not visible. Getting into the idea. But first, here's the the overview of that verse, I think. First, the apostle says, you be fully believing. In other words, your belief better be sound, it better be strong. In your hearts. In other words, that's how your heart is sanctified. In your heart concerning the Lord God. That you need to be strong. Then you can defend your faith. Have you ever had to defend a position you didn't believe in? It's very hard to do. Or defend or even argue for something that you know is is not right. Um, you know, if we get on a debate team, sometimes we pick a subject and we end up on the the side that we don't want to be on. Uh, that's not what's being said here. Uh, this is not a debate. This is the issue of your hope because of your faith in the things of God. But always with meekness and fear is how he finishes the thought. Not fear of men, but for God. 
in all reverence. And here, fear of God is, is the idea of revering God in your heart. Because of the type of person you are, if you're defending your, your hope, because you're faithful towards God, uh, this is a position you are in, and the fear of man should not be an issue. <clears throat> Let it be an issue for those that are accusing or questioning. But, you know, a good testimony, one that I guess we could refer it to, uh, and a lot of people refer it to someone trying to sell you something. You know pretty much right away if they're not really into the product, if they don't really think it's the best, uh, they're, they're really not that convincing. And I think that, that's where we're at here. And we don't want to be as Christians. We don't want to be unconvincing just because we set out or, or we appear that way. Um, we don't have to appear that way. If we have a, a good ground understanding of the things of the apostles, that's why we're doing these things, studying the writings of the apostles, so that we have their understanding as part of our character and understanding. Then verse 16, we need to read, having a good conscience that in that in which they speak against you as evildoers, they may be ashamed who are traducing your good behavior in Christ. Now that traducing is not a word we use every day. But I believe it, it has the connotation of uh, speaking evil of, um, speaking against. Um, it's not the Greek word, but it's certainly the, uh, the language of the English people about 150 years ago. So, but don't let that be a hindrance. Having a good conscience, that is, your conscience must be good towards God. Having a good conscience. You may be accused, but your accusers will be ashamed of themselves because of your good behavior in Christ. I think that's important. So even those that are evildoers that seem to have no regard whatsoever, you know, they have eyes and ears and they understand when they, when they see that you're not a lawbreaker, uh, when you do have good behavior in Christ, that, that um, this sets a, a little a seed of doubt in their mind as to whether their argument is really legitimate or not. And it does you a lot of good, too. Uh, and it's the only position that we can take um, that is, that's useful. The truth, I believe, is more powerful than any accusation towards the righteous. You know, we live in a word, world right now where people in our government in this country, um, they seem to both, they both say, both sides have all the truth, and yet they disagree with each other on nearly everything. Now, how can that be? Oh, I know, I know there's a comment. Uh, a lot of people have, well, that's your truth, and this is my truth. Well, that's not the truth that I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about the truth. In other words, at one time, there was the truth about every subject. And it did not come from people. It came from God, and he has given us the truth. Now, we need to use it. So it's more powerful than the accusations. Maybe not at that very moment. But down the road, maybe a short time, maybe a long time. As I said, you're the victor, so the truth is definitely on your side. Now, 
I'm going to read a, a little definition on, on the word conscience, and, and, and a little bit I'm going to read a verse con, uh, concerning conscience. But the idea of conscience, according to Bollinger, of whom I really respect his, uh, his Greek uh, critical uh, concordance, it says uh, this particular word here in our text, First uh, Peter three six sixteen is a knowing with oneself um, the being one's own witness the testimony to one's own conduct born by conscientiousness and basically it, it's man's relationship. God in in a good conscience that's so important here um, and it goes on on from that but um, there's just the one word used in this this text and a number of others uh, that has this point and a little bit later we'll read a, a verse that uses this thinking that explains it a little more but let's move on to uh, verse 19 through 21 and verse 19 is a real is a real humdinger if you will um, but we'll look at uh, 17 18 and 19 we're missing 17 and 18 in our, in our over in our letter here or our uh, study but we have it. Let's, we'll go ahead and read it. I have my notes on it. Yeah. All right. 17 and 18. Let's read them first. For it is better doing good if the will of God will it to suffer than doing evil. Well, that seems like a, a real good statement, following all we've heard already. 18, because also Christ, once for sin did suffer, righteous for unrighteousness, that he might lead us to God, having been put to death indeed in the flesh and having been made alive in the spirit. Verse 17 and 18. You know, it's always better to do good. Um, I think that's the idea from the apostle here. Uh, especially if it's the will of God, and why wouldn't it be? Um, that evil that may be more, that, that, that evil act that we could do, uh, the circumstance may feel like what we need to do, something to be a little more emotionally pleasing at the time, such as a harsh word or a sharp uh, comment. Um, the word evil meaning a useless situation. In other words, something having no, no real purpose or bearing uh, or work, that, that's really what evil is, compared to something that's good, which is productive and righteous. Um, the, the act, you know, the, the apostle is just trying to give us every reason to do the right thing and avoid doing the wrong thing, even though we know as people Many times, what we what we say it all the time. Well, what I would have liked to said was, or maybe I wish I would have said, but really, better judgment took us and 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 led us down the right path for that situation. But we feel like we'd have been more emotionally pleased if we'd have done something else. But in verse 18, he does what. Peter does what he usually does. He brings the the uh, what would Jesus do situation into it. 
because also Christ once died for sin did suffer and he he was righteous but he died for the unrighteous you think Christ should have had anything to say before Pilate and before the Jews and on the cross I think he could have said a lot of things that they would have said yeah he's right <laughs> we're not doing the right thing but he didn't do that uh, for a couple of good reasons of course Mostly because it was for us that he did these things. Put to death indeed in the flesh. The apostolic message is what this is concerning the Savior. Because you can't go too long without bringing the Savior back into the equation. This is the message concerning the Savior. And God's work through him on behalf of man's salvation. That's what it's all about being made alive in spirit. You'll notice in the in the Greek um, uh, the word by spirit is not in in there. Quickened um, such as it's in the flesh, quickened in spirit. The word, there's no room for the other words in there. The uh, word is, the Greek word is only spirit in the neuter and uh, singular. So we have to understand what the apostle was saying. Quickened, made alive in spirit. And that's how it occurs. So now we can go to verse 19. And this verse is, if you read anything at all or heard anybody speak, this verse is a difficult one to understand. But here, here's what we need to understand. The apostle speaks of things that he understands here. All right? The apostle knows what he means by this, where it says, in which also, in other words, adding to what he just said in verse 18, in which also to the spirits in prison having gone, he did preach. Now the he um, is in reference, of course, to the Lord, um, to Christ, and uh, the, the spirits in prison um, is where the we're not exactly sure what that means. I have a comment concerning you know the word of Christ. In other words, the testimony of Christ, and from the very beginning, from the very beginning to Adam and Eve, they were told that a redeemer would be sent, one to defeat the work of Satan, that they had seen his work personally and up front. So when the Lord died on the cross, what did he say? It, uh, what did he say? Uh, it is complete or it is finished. Uh, that's the Greek phrase. The same one that Alexander the Great said when he went over the last wall in Babylon. It is finished. In other words, the work is done. The battle is won. Um, and that, that word or, or that significant work was not unknown in the spirit realm. I, I think that's my taking of this verse. So it was proclaimed, that work was proclaimed to the spirits. Those that had come before the cross uh, that were awaiting the promise of God. And I, and I think that's important. Um, and there's probably a lot more to be said about that. 
there's another passage we, we know about, uh, about the Lord descending and uh, preaching and leading cap- captivity or leading the captives out of captivity. And all of that has seen, having to do with the, with the issue of the Jews um, and the return of Christ and that sort of thing. But uh, this is, touches on that but in a different way, I believe. But in verse 20, if we read verse 20, we see in verse 20 and 21, but we'll do uh, verse uh, 20 first. And it goes on with the idea of who sometime, in other words, sometime in the past, disbelieved those people. When once, the long suffering of God did wait in days of Noah, an ark being prepared, an ark being preparing, in which few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Okay, that's verse 20. Now here we find the idea of a figure of speech coming into play. Concerning what? Concerning the phrase saved through water, all right? Saved through water. It it applies to the eight of Noah's day. They were in the ark, right? For 120 years, Noah preached, and, and him and his family worked on that ark. 120 years he preached that the, the people there needed to repent and to join them in the ark, if you will, put aside their their sinning, put aside whatever it was they were doing. For 120 years, the message went out. But at the end of the, the last day, when the water started to rise, only the eight went on the ark. Do you suppose it would have been an act of faith in God to get on that ark? I think it would have been. I think they were faithless, those that perished. They didn't believe God. They didn't believe Noah. Even though what they were seeing, you know, the folly of Noah, building what, whatever that was, they didn't need boats um, in the middle of the ground. <laughs> So they were floating on the water, being saved by water, saved through water, but floating in the ark on the water. Now we have what the uh, uh, Youngs calls an antitype in verse 21, where he continues this thought, also to which an antitype doth now save us. By the way, the word us there is first person plural, so the apostle doesn't take it beyond the apostles, but it's obvious that that uh, those that are in Christ are also saved in the same uh, in the same way. But the apostles usually never speak beyond their own. This, this our Bible program calls that out a second person, which is in, I think, pretty interesting. Yeah, it, there's a, there's the. A, uh, um, Within the Greek text, there's a variant where it says you instead of us. Uh, But this us here is is a commentary in in reality. Um, Nonetheless, the us would also include the first person plural group, wouldn't it? Sure it would. Yeah. So, um, did I let off there on the scriptures? Mm doth now save us, baptism. Now he names it. Not a putting away of the filth of the flesh, in other words, not not a washing, but the question of a good conscience in regard to God. Now we're back to the conscience, aren't we? Through the rising again of Jesus Christ, and now the resurrection of Christ, is also a major part in this idea of being saved, isn't it? Everything in here is. 
he also tells us what this baptism isn't. I don't see such the problem with this, but this, this, uh, this whole 20 and 21 have always been uh, under a lot of examination and a lot of problematic thinking. Now, baptism, according to the apostle, now saves us or those in Christ. That is the immersion into water. That's the definition of baptism. Plunging under, not floating on top of it as the ark, those in the ark. That's why it's the antitype. But if they were still saved both through water. It's not the water. That's the point. You see, it's not the water. The water has no magical qualities or regenerating qualities. We're not talking about, and the, the Apostle Peter here is certainly not teaching the concept of water regeneration at all. The water is being used. But rather the action of God upon those in each case. In other words, God's salvation for man in the days of Noah was to get in the ark and float on the water and, and keep from drowning. The action of the water now in the church age is that we are immersed in water in, in response to our faith in God and our faith in, in his son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation. When we have repented and confessed his name, we are immersed in water where in reality, is, that is where we contact the blood of Christ in a spiritual way, in a figurative way, if you will. But all of this is just an illustration he's making that, that shows it's, it's all through faith. There was a lack of faith in Noah's day. Most people did not get on the ark. There's a lack of faith in the days of the apostles. Not every Jew was baptized. Not every Jew put away their sins by their act of being baptized and believing in, in Christ. So, let's look at it quickly. Uh, let's look at it. We, we need to understand the idea of conscience because without the thinking of having a good conscience towards God, none of this means anything. So if we look at conscience in the light of 1 Timothy 1.5, I think we'll, that's a really good verse uh, that holds a lot of uh, charge here. And it says this, And the end of the charge is love, out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned. You see, all these things are part of the same thing. Uh, an unfeigning faith is, is another quality of a person with a good conscience towards God, and they have a pure heart. This is the, this is the reality that we need to understand. Now, when it comes to the idea of baptism, immersion in water, we know that there were people baptized before uh, Jesus was born. The rite of being immersed was used in the Levitical uh, writings and the, uh, the priesthood. Uh, even uh, uh, proselytes were baptized and that sort of thing. But let's look at the condition of the Jews when we really get into what's known as Christian baptism. You know, John the Baptist, in Mark chapter 1, I think it's verse 4, um, we probably should read that one to give it the other hand because a lot of people just think that baptism in the New Testament, every word is exactly means exactly the same thing. Well, it doesn't. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness and he was preaching a baptism 
of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, the word for there in the Greek is the, is the actual word unto, unto or towards. That would be the concept because it's a baptism of repentance. Repentance is fine, but Christian baptism is for the remission of sins. So it's unto remission of sins. In other words, towards. What was there any were these people Christians when they were baptized by John? No. It wasn't Christian baptism. Just because it's done basically for uh, looking the same from a distance <clears throat> doesn't mean it's exactly the same thing. Peter's qualifications for baptism are a little different as we're going to read. Um, so that's baptism for, uh, in repentance. There's also other passages in Acts that teach about the difference between these, as many of you know. But in um, Acts 2.36, Acts 2.36, the Jews had an issue. They were guilty, and they had a very guilty uh, conscience, if you will. And what Peter say to the Jews that he was preaching to after some time, he said, Assuredly, therefore, let all the house of Israel know that both Lord and Christ did God make him, this Jesus whom you did crucify. So they had a need or a remedy for their guilt, didn't they, and their sin. What, what did they say? And having heard, they were pricked to their heart. And they said also to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, What shall we do, men and brethren? These people were in the condition they needed to be in, those that were asking, whether they vocalized it or thought it in their minds and hearts. What did Peter say uh, in response, the solution, if you will? And we need to look at what has been written here very carefully. And Peter said unto them, Reform, that's the word we use for repent, or turn around, and be baptized each of you on the name or in the name, I believe it is, of Jesus Christ, to remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to get completely into this verse and dissect it at uh, all, because our subject here is the issue of baptism. Uh, the word, uh, what does it mean? What is, what is the word Bap, baptism or baptized mean well in in this in first peter three twenty one baptized simply is an immersion or washing with water because in in the case of the Levitical priesthood it was the washing washing unto purification from sin as used in the New Testament. Uh, we call it, some people call it the rite of baptism. And then, of course, the word baptize is, uh, is the idea of dipping. To immerse is to dip. And that's how they used to dye linens. Uh, that's how we wash dishes. And, you know, uh, that's, that's the act. It's the dipping act if you want a physical idea. So baptism is only one, there's only one word for, uh, one meaning for the word to immerse, and this is it. It's not the same word for sprinkle, pour, or anoint, anoint or any of those other words. There's even a church somewhere in St. Louis that sprinkles rose petals for baptism on your head. Uh, 
that's a, that's a stretch, but it's not any more of a stretch than sprinkling in general. So if you're going to do as you please, you might as well use anything you want. But to be baptized is to be immersed in water, dipped. Um, and we're running short of time, but I want to share with you uh, the idea of the place and reality of baptism and salvation, because that's what's at question most times. And in Romans 6, looking at verse 3, we read uh, some very interesting words. And the apostle uh, Paul here, writing to the church in Rome, are you ignorant that we, that is the Christians, as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus, to his death, were baptized? You see, we're baptized into his death. It's, it's, it's figurative of a burial, you see. Mm-hmm. We were buried together then with him through the baptism to the death. That even as Christ was raised up out of the dead through the glory of the Father, so also we in newness of life might walk. For if we have become planted together to likeness of his death, so also we shall be of the rising again. This know, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin may be made useless for our no longer serving sin. For he who hath died hath been set free from sin. You see, friends, that's the figurative idea of being baptized, being buried, to imitate the death of Christ. And in doing so, we are set free from the sin. Verse 8, And if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised up out of the dead, doth no more die. Death over him hath no more lordship. For in that he died, to the sin he died once. And in that he liveth, he liveth to God. So also you, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to the sin, and living to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that uh, I'll stop there. Do you have any question why the Apostle Peter would consider consider baptism as part of being saved and the removal of sin? And we know that what saves, literally what saves is the blood of Christ. But unless we contact the blood of Christ through obeying the gospel in, in every part, how can we say we share in that forgiveness? So as the, as the Apostle Peter made this, uh, this analogy uh, of the flood and baptism, showing that being saved by water is out of obedience to God. In, in the one case, it was getting on the water in the ark. In this case, it's being buried in the water in Christian baptism. Why? I don't have to tell you why. (laughs) And I wouldn't even attempt to try to tell you why. But I, I know one thing. If God requires it, if it's what he said, and the apostles preached, then I know that it's true. So, there you have it. Uh, We'll pick up again next time with the last verse of the chapter because it needs a little bit of uh, time and we're out of time this evening. So, this isn't an argument uh, for baptism. It's a clarification. I don't have to argue concerning the truth. So, there it is. Uh, I pray that this is useful to you. Um, The apostle certainly thought it was necessary for us to know. And that's good enough for me. So let us us end this night with a prayer. And we thank you, Father, for the clarity of your word and for the seriousness of your commands and your instructions 
May we put aside, Father, our doubts and our concepts that are born of man's minds and turn to you and your clearness within your word, through your word, through your Son, and through the apostles of Christ. May we learn to know better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.